A note to listeners. This week's episode focuses on the new 988 hotline, a complement to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It will include discussions of suicide and other mental health struggles, so feel free to skip this one if you need, and come on back next week. Time is not on our side. With fewer than 100 days until the scheduled rollout of 988, the new nationwide mental health and suicide prevention crisis hotline is unfortunately far from being ready. The 988 line has the potential to create new pathways for care and a system that is responsive to communities' needs. But without robust financing, clear communication, and strong leadership, the consequences of not getting 988 right are severe and lives may be lost. That was Ben Miller reading from his first opinion essay, Not Going All In on the 988 Hotline Will Ensure Its Failure. Ben is the president of Wellbeing Trust and chair of the advisory board of Inseparable, two leading mental health organizations. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, CEO of STAT. Thanks for listening. Johnson & Johnson is known as a leader in medical devices, and that business has a new name to reflect its mission. I'm joined by Ashley McAvoy, Executive Vice President and Worldwide Chairman of Johnson & Johnson MedTech, to learn more about the importance of this growing space. Thank you, Angus. We've seen firsthand over the past two years that the world needs and expects more from medical intervention. MedTech is driving advances in areas like AI and data science to start to address these unmet needs and and start to improve outcomes and expand access, all while really innovating the patient experience. You know, J&J MedTech, we're poised to lead this transformation because we're all about being a patient-centered, growth-focused innovator. We look to apply our deep healthcare expertise, our pioneering spirit, and broad network of partners to advance medical technologies and solutions. And clearly, it's all about solving the biggest unmet needs in healthcare and the challenges that await us. Thanks, Ashley. To learn more, visit www.jnjmedtech.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, STAT's platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's so great to talk with you, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, Pat. So do you come at this mostly from the policy side? Are you a clinician? How do you, how did you, what's your journey to this? Oh, man, that's a great question. So I have to say, I started as a clinician. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I spent about a decade in academia where I mainly focused on researching things like, how do you better bring mental health into primary care? And then why is nobody paying for it? And then what are the policy solutions that we could pursue as academia to really allow for this to be scaled and sustained? So I came to Wellbeing Trust after that experience and really recognizing that there's a lot that could be done in the mental health space with just a little bit of resource. And now being able to run a foundation and partner with 
amazing folks across the country were able to invest in those solutions. What was it that nudged you toward clinical psychology? I taught in special education when I came out of college. It was one of my first jobs. And I spent about two years in a school that had kids with some what, what we would classify in the special education space as severely emotionally disturbed. You know, it's a category that is reserved for children that oftentimes um, have behavioral problems, act out, uh, really just pretty uh, ex- you know, inexperienced at being able to regulate uh, their emotion. So I was working in the school and just frustrated every day. And the, the principal at the school was a psychologist. And he looked at me and he said, you know, son, you got potential. Uh, I don't think that this job is long for you because I think you're <laughs> going to burn out. I think you need to go get some more education. And so he was a psychologist. And I said, that sounds good. So I became a psychologist. So as a clinical psychologist, you must have worked with people with very serious mental health problems and even suicidal thoughts. Absolutely. Early on in my career, I had the opportunity to work in in prison settings, had the opportunity to work in more specialized settings where folks had pretty significant mental illness. But most of my clinical experience, Pat, frankly, was in the primary care setting where you see folks that uh, don't even know that what mental health is, including some of the physicians, I might mind you. And, and all the way up to individuals that have had profound mental illness for years that are just well-managed and are looking for some additional support. So yes, I've seen the full continuum throughout my career. You know, you described what seems to me like a tough job, working in primary care with primary care physicians. Physicians don't often like to be told things, um, but you were probably in the position of having to guide them or tell them things. How did that go? It's always a partnership. I, I remember early on I, I, when I was at the University of Colorado in the School of Medicine, I got a, a random call from a physician in northern Colorado, and he said, Dr. Miller, I need you to come up here and help my practice. You know, I, I don't know what's going on, but my patients just don't listen to me. They don't do what I tell them to do. And I thought, you know what? This is symbolic of a much larger problem I think we have in medicine with this top-down hierarchy of you know, everything I say goes and not really putting the person or the patient at the center of the decision making. So, yeah, in in primary care practices, when you're truly on the team, you coordinate with others as a clinician, you collaborate. And many times you're working side by side with that, you know, primary care doc and helping see the patient with them. And so it's a really wonderful for those of you that have been able to experience it. There's nothing better than having a team of clinicians that can really address all of your needs and not to have to go to six different clinics, not to have to follow up on five different referrals and 10 different copays. It really simplifies the process, which is frankly, at the end of the day, what we should be doing for healthcare. Yeah, I was going to say that was a nutshell view of value-based care, I think. (laughs) Well said, well said. Yeah, unfortunately, in the value-based conversations we have these days, uh, what we value is not necessarily what the patient values. And so I think that's still, we have still have a long road to go before we get to what's truly valuable for the people we're serving. The 988 hotline, which we'll get to in a second, part of its focus is people in severe crisis, like people contemplating suicide. How big a problem is suicide in the United States? It is a significant problem, and I don't want to undermine or underrepresent this, but when you just look at some of the top reasons why people are dying in this nation, it's usually from drug overdose, which has now reached proportions that we've never seen, over 100,000, the last tranche of data we saw from the CDC, alcohol use and abuse, and then suicide. And when you just kind of factor those three things together, which sometimes they do come hand in hand, unfortunately, 
it's about um, you know one person every three minutes dying from one of those causes. So it has not gotten better. And I think the trends that we've seen specifically around our youth have been quite disturbing in the suicide space. And there's been lots of data out there that have spoken to this. But really, my concern is that we're not going in the right direction, Pat. Uh, all of the trends are going in the wrong direction. And for two decades, we've seen suicide continue to increase. But it's not alone. It's really side by side with the issues that I mentioned around drug overdose and alcohol, as well as just uh, increased depression, anxiety, and other uh, mental health issues that our, our communities have had to face. These are the deaths of despair that people talking about, aren't they? That's correct. And that's a term that was coined around 2008 by a couple of economists. And it really was at the time, it was noticing that that was during the Great Recession, that a lot of individuals, especially in white communities that were lower middle class, uh, working class folks were, were dying from these preventable causes. Now, since then, I think what we've seen is some pretty significant shift in those data. And of course, we're still seeing uh, um, you know, white communities die at, at pretty high rates, but we're also seeing communities of color die at disproportionately higher rates, especially to things like psychostimulants, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, and it just speaks really broadly to a much you know, deeper issue that we have to talk about in America, which is how we can really pursue strategies that work for all communities and not just some communities. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline has been around since 2004. I'm going to give out a couple numbers here. The number of that lifeline is 800-273-8255 or 800-273-TALK. And veterans and service members can reach the Veterans Crisis Line by pressing one after dialing. Um, they can also text to 838-255. Have services like these worked well to help people in mental health or suicidal crises? Well, this is the $50 million question, Pat. I, I do think if you look at the data, there are studies that have shown that it has helped in some cases. The problem is that it, this is a very difficult thing to measure because of the heterogeneity of the sample. And so not to get overly academic here, uh, but I think you can find that in, there was actually just a study that came out. I haven't had a chance to read it as fully as I want. I wish I would have now knowing you were gonna ask me that question, but it did look at the impact of the lifelines over the last decade. And I think what you see is that there have been some really modest improvements on that, but this is fundamentally the problem that I think we face in trying to measure things like prevention, because this is in essence a, a preventive measure, is that, you know, how do you measure the cost of someone whose life didn't they didn't lose? You know, how do you begin to measure those things in prevention that didn't happen? So who's who's to say how many lives we've saved over the last however many years because of the lifelines? But I have to say the cost of doing nothing is much worse. So here we are at a time and a place where we're going in the wrong direction with those data I already mentioned. People are really looking for help. And let me just say one more thing on this. I mean, the lack of effective crisis response systems, it burdens everyone, including our emergency departments. I mean, these are facilities that are really ill-equipped to address that person who's in a mental health crisis. And if you look at the data there of individuals that are showing up in emergency departments, those with mental health conditions are staying close to three times longer than others waiting for inpatient care. And so these long waits in emergency departments, they put a huge strain on the individual, the families, their kids, the staff, and they result in poor outcomes. And if anything, the pandemic has been like gasoline to a fire and has worsened this crisis, especially 
for our youth, which we've seen. And there was a study that came out that I think it was looking from March to April of 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. And it found like a 25% increase in the proportion of mental health emergency department visits for kids ages 5 to 11. And if you look at the, the teenagers, 12 to 17, it was a 31% increase when you compare it to the same time uh, before the pandemic in 2019. So like all of that says to me is that if we did nothing and we had no other systems in place like hotlines, lifelines, then those emergency departments are going to be even more overrun. The wait times that people have to have to get in to see a clinician is going to be even longer. So this is a necessary and important step that I think we need in our full continuum of care. So currently, for people who don't know that there's a, a helpline like this, many of those people currently just call 911, don't they? That's right. That's right. And unfortunately, with a 911 response, you're not going to get a medical response. I mean, you're going to get usually police, fire, or, or somewhere in between. And, and I think what we're trying to do here is to shift how law enforcement should take a secondary role in crisis response, which I believe is a paradigmic shift. That, and 988 is, a, is an opportunity to begin to recognize that mental health conditions needed to be treated as a matter of health care, not of criminal justice, which 911, I mean, you think about the times that you've called 911. If anybody's ever called 911, it's a medical emergency or you're scared someone's breaking into your floor and it's really just your cat in the kitchen. You know, those things are reasons that we call 911. And, and, and fortunately, the folks that are answering the calls are not well trained in addressing mental health crises. And I can give you the data on this, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, if you do have a mental illness and you do receive a police response, there's a higher likelihood of death, of, of being killed because of, and this is just because of the way it works out. Um, police officers are really ill-prepared in many cases for managing individuals that are experiencing uh, a mental health crisis. Right. They're case after case where de-escalation should have happened and didn't. That's right. That's right. So on, on July 16th, that's 84 and a half days from the time of this conversation, calls made to 988, an easier to remember and easier to dial number, they'll be all routed to the hotline. Will people be able to text 988? Yes, that is the goal. Right now, they're currently working on developing the the switches, the mechanisms. I don't know the technical terms. That requires a different degree than the one I have. But yes, so that individuals will be able to text into the, the, the line as well. Which will be great for all the people way younger than me who depend on text. <laughs> um, and, and it's a, a very important communication tool. So who's on the receiving end of these calls? Well, that is a great question. And if you look at the lines across the country, they, they oftentimes have you know, varying degrees of who is answering the call, different types of training. But really, the, the individuals that are answering a 988 or a crisis line is a very different type of person than probably answering 911. 911's got a triage. They got a route to different uh, departments. They got to figure out, well, where do the people go and who do you need? 988, um, if you talk to the folks that have been doing this for some time, they will say close to 80% of the calls that come in, they can manage on the phone alone. That means without sending out uh, what we would call a mobile crisis unit, which would be a unit that was really trained and specialized in addressing issues of mental health or suicide prevention. So 80%. That means that that person that's talking to you on the phone really does need to know mental health, substance use disorder, and suicide prevention inside and out. I don't want to say that they have to be clinicians in every case. I don't think that's probably true. But there does need to be a, really a rigorous training 
as to how you can show up for folks when they're in probably their darkest moments, when they're having their most difficult time, how you can be empathic, how you can help you know bring them to a place that they're calm, help them understand that there are options out there that might keep them alive. All of those things require a very different skill set. So I, I think our concern as we look at the rollout of 988 is that yes, we need more people to answer these numbers, this number when it gets called. Uh, and we, that requires resources and resources that are currently not necessarily as available as one like, might like. Uh, that's part of the reason why I wrote the opinion for you all is that it seems that right now states are not necessarily taking as much of an aggressive action as they could to bring in those revenue. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, I think it's four states, it might be five now, have passed legislation that charges a fee if you dialed the number. So there's telecom fees that would be placed on top of uh, your existing cell phone bill that would go towards this lifeline, which brings in millions of dollars, but millions of dollars that may be insufficient in ultimately creating a full continuum of care. It might staff a line, it might help us with some of our workforce issues, but it sure doesn't help us really look at the full continuum of care, which includes things like mobile crisis units and places that people can go who are in need of help. And so these call centers, they're, I've read anywhere between 120 and 200 in the United States. They're, they've been described as a hodgepodge. Um, they're not standardized. They're, they're different from one state to another. Some states have one, some have more. Uh, it sounds like a not exactly a system. Yes, I think you hit the nail on the head. We have an opportunity here to really raise the standards of what should be expected when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention and crisis just in general. And I think that's another major policy discussion that has to be had, is what are the standards that should go into these call centers? What are the standards that should go into every community, every state that is looking to expand how they are addressing, uh, you know, mental health crises and, and a full continuum of, of care. You know, there's been people in the Beltway that have talked quite a bit at, at multiple levels on what are those standards and who should be setting the standards. But to, as to date, what we have best is to look at SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. They've put out a lot of guidance to states on what they believe should be a part of that continuum. And they really focus on three big things, you know, a person to call, which is the number itself and who's going to answer it, someone to show up, which would be the mobile crisis unit, and then ultimately a place for people to go. And, and that is, in essence, the parameters that we're currently placing around what needs to be in place. But to your, your amazing point, even those call centers, the place to call, have inconsistencies in the quality of what's being done there. So my, my, I have a lot of fears, Pat. I'm, they're coming out on this podcast here today. I have a lot of fears. Uh, one of my other fears, aside from not having enough funding, is that we roll this thing out and the quality is subpar. And because of there's not enough funding or because we haven't set the standards, and what happens is you run the risk of people encountering a mental health, quote unquote, system for the first time through 988 and being totally turned off by it and never going back. And those people don't spontaneously just get better. What we know from history and from evidence is that they show up in all the wrong places next. They show up back in the emergency department. They show up on the streets or God forbid, you know, they take their own life. You know, it doesn't just necessarily always improve just because you want it to. So we have to have those systems in place. And if we don't, I, I'm afraid that uh, a lot of individuals out there are going to have a worse off experience than, than they should. Well, I, I don't mean to fuel fears here, but even maybe a step beyond um substandard care, 
You mentioned that 911, which has been around for 50 years, it's become an indispensable part of U.S. healthcare. But as you wrote in your essay, I'm going to quote here, it would be unthinkable today to call 911 and be unable to reach an operator who could quickly dispatch a fully equipped first responder team. Is it a possibility or maybe even a reality that nobody's going to pick up the phone when someone calls? Well, I think there's a possibility the the number might ring longer than it should for you to be able to get the person that you need. And that is going to be highly dependent on where you live. And this brings us full circle to disparities again. There are some parts of this country that have better resources that are going to go in to support the rollout of 988 than others. Private philanthropy, you know, individual donors, states that just have figured out different ways to manage their budgets to really prioritize mental health. All of those things really do matter, which I think speaks to, um, again, the need to put more consistent funding into this, but also just to really level expectations on what's going to happen in July. I don't think that anybody is prepared for this number to roll out and all of a sudden things are just miraculously different. It's the beginning of something that could be different. I've referred to 988 as the Trojan horse for mental health reform for over you know, a year now. And I, cause I, I actually think that if you're serious about transforming mental health, then it does begin with looking at that full continuum where crisis is a piece of it. But our current system is already ill-equipped, ill-prepared to manage even the most basic crises And so if we can think about increasing the number of people that are going to have um, a a need or calling 988, where are they going to go, Pat? We don't have current capacity. So we have to really build that out. And I think that comes by finding those additional resources. And I, I I am really interested in seeing which states step up. Now, one more comment here. 911 for, you know, a little over a decade plus was funded mainly by a large philanthropy. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation started and set up the 911 system and they held it and made sure that it was going to be effective until there was eventually funding that supported it. Now, we do not have anybody that's raised their hand and say, I'm willing to put several billion dollars into this rollout. But I can imagine if there's some billionaire listening to your podcast today, if they wanted to do something that could be transformative for mental health in this country, they could literally help stand up 988 the way that it should be stood up. Is relying on philanthropy a risky, a risky business? Yes, absolutely. Because we know from lots of, of years of experience in this space that that grant makers alone, I mean, those, those grants go away. And sometimes, if a state sees the grant as holding it up, they may be less than um, you know inclined to support it through precious general fund dollars. And so, yeah, there is a risk there. And we don't want people to necessarily think just because philanthropy comes in and helps stand up part of this, that it's always going to be there to help stand up. I think that's why it took so long for 911. But in this case, uh, with the current state of social media, with how everybody is always on, how you don't miss a beat, there's going to be a lot of stories of what happens, both good and bad. I, I mean, I don't want to just harp on the negative. I think there'll be really success stories here of people whose lives were saved or amazing encounters where something was averted because they were able to get what they needed through the 988 call number. But all of that requires us to really be prepared. And I think that's why conversations like this and op-eds like the one that I've written and many of my colleagues have written are so important. It's just to bring us to a place of being more prepared for what's happening. Are many Americans aware of 988? 
No. And I just saw a study the other day, and I can't quote it exactly off the top of my head, but very few are aware of 988. And as um, our team was joking just a couple of weeks ago, most people were aware, were not aware of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number until Logic you know, was Grammy nominated for a song named after the number. So we got a huge education problem. And I, I do think that communicating out what both the number is and how to really um, lay out the expectations of what's going to happen when you call that number. I do think that's essential. And I, I know that our federal partners, including SAMHSA, are working on this. I know that there are some states that are beginning to talk about it, but it is going to require us to get out there and uh, really make sure that we communicate clearly what this is. You know, do you think the rollout of 988 will increase the number of people calling for help? Yeah. And I'm hesitant to quote you stats that I've seen. But yes, I think folks that run the lifeline have really have, have speculated or, or projected that they will see a substantial increase. And so I, I have a feeling that once folks are aware that there is a number that can provide a little bit more assistance to them, they probably will rather readily avail themselves of that versus go to the emergency department, which I've already mentioned is probably the worst place for people to go when they are in crisis, not taking anything away from the emergency frontline clinicians. They're doing awesome stuff. It's just they're they're oftentimes packed and they're not necessarily the most um, therapeutic environment for someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis. No, I mean, I've been in emergency departments a few times. I can't wait to get out. And I, I can't imagine being there for a day or two days or longer as Stat and others have written about. You mentioned thinking of 988 as like a mental health Trojan horse. What are some of the things that might be hidden inside of it for good? Well, th this is a this is a hard conversation to have, Pat, because it really challenges a lot of the structures that have been in place for decades. But if we just kind of look at basic structure in the public space, most of individuals who are on Medicaid, they go to what's called a community mental health center. And I'm sure you and many of your listeners are familiar with this. It's kind of our mental health safety net, except it's never really ever truly received the most comprehensive amount of funding to allow it to build up. And there's a history lesson in here we could talk about for hours if you're interested. Uh, we've got the federally qualified health centers that do receive pretty substantial federal dollars, and that's a safety net for our medical side, and yet they do a little bit of mental health too. I think when I talk about the structural change necessary in the Trojan horse piece, it's to begin to challenge assumptions. Is the best place for people to receive care always going to be these clinics? I think for many individuals, and again, looking at the data, when they are referred to a mental health clinic, they usually don't go. And so we have to be able to really recognize that folks won't care to come to them or they won't care to be where they are, from schools to primary care to their local library. I mean, there's an opportunity here to better democratize those programs and the knowledge that comes from those programs and put it out to where people are. That's what I mean about Trojan Horse. Number two is really around financing. I mean, I think there, there is such an opportunity here to really get creative with how we think about how we pay for mental health care. I mean, I already mentioned that, that in large part to lack of financing, uh, 98's gonna have a hard time getting up and going. Medicare and commercial plans, they cover very limited services, if any, related to crisis response. Medicaid covers more for Medicaid eligible individuals, but it still doesn't begin to really reimburse the full cost of the call centers, the people that show up in the mobile crisis units, the crisis stabilization centers, et cetera. 
So, I mean, that's why I think we have an opportunity to think more globally about the budgets that our states have for things like mental health. And instead of constantly looking at mental health as this siloed financial arm, oh, that's the mental health budget, which is usually just, you know, honestly, in most states, it's budget dust. It's not a lot of money. You know, we've got to be thinking more creatively. This can't just be left to the mental health you know, uh, world to figure out how we're going to solve 988. It actually requires us to get creative. And I think part of the way that we can get more creative is through financing. That's another really subtle way to begin to shift how we think about where mental health is delivered and for whom. I read somewhere that you and and others think of calls for suicide help or psychotic breaks as a, quote, continuum of crisis. Is, is that how mental health should be viewed? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I like to do, especially with lay audiences, is really to remind people that all of us, no matter what, where you are in life, what stage of your life you're in, any of that stuff, we mental health is foundational to who we are. It, it's really a core part of our overall health. And people conflate mental health with mental illness. They don't think about it on a continuum. But just like with your 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 body, and if you don't take care of your body, there will be things that break down and there will be things that you will have to that will, you might get a diagnosis for or it could become an illness one day. That's the same way we need to think about mental health. But my concern is that most of us automatically, when you hear the words mental health, you think of the person who's talking to themselves on the street, which is a horrible stereotype. And it really doesn't necessarily bring us to a place that we can embrace fully what the full, that full continuum that you just alluded to. Ben, this has been really an interesting and enlightening conversation. Let's keep our fingers crossed that on July 16th, 988 rolls out well and flourishes. That is my hope, Pat. This is, this is our moment as leaders to really stand up and do what we can to make sure that it's successful to really help those communities that we live in. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.